I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Makita Brotman, author, professor, and psychoanalyst. Well, I'll start with um, talking a bit about how I got into psychoanalysis because I know that that's something you ask everybody, and um, and and I also like I like the fact that it, it's kind of structured like a session, and that you know one thing leads to another, and it's really free, and there's no questions and answers, um, because I think that allows for the most interesting kind of conversations where you're jumping around, and in fact, when when we talk about the book, like one of the things I want to talk about is all the peripheries and tangents that um, that I get into that, is, that I love so much. So I think I would say that I got into psychoanalysis in, well, in two ways. One in that, like, I feel like it's always the way that I've thought anyway. So it's not really, like, when I first came across Freud and psychoanalysis, it was more like, oh, there's a word for this. So, like, this is how I think. And obviously it wasn't like I didn't think systematically in that way but just in terms you know if someone is really interested in like the female perspective and they discover feminism or they're interested in class and they discover Marxism it was more like oh there's a word for this and other people think this way too I realized that I because I tend to think in terms of symbols and metaphors which I guess is the way that a lot of creative people think anyway in terms of like substitutions, like what does this stand for or what does this represent or, and connect, making connections between things and thinking of like language as a sort of magical system where one thing leads, leads to the next. And also um, thinking of things as like there being a repressed, um, that, what you see on the surface isn't all there is and that there's other things being concealed underneath and um, you have to kind of dig them out or find a way for them to come out and find out what's actually going on between the surface. So all of those things were like the way I thought anyway. But then when I was at college, um, I I was studying English at Oxford and there was this, um, I found an ad that a retired psychoanalyst had placed that he wanted to see, he was willing to see um, students at no fee who couldn't afford um, treatment. And I answered the ad and went to see him. But I, even though I didn't really know what was the difference between psychoanalysis and any other kind of therapy, I, you know, and I lay on the couch and everything, I just thought that was what you did in therapy, whatever it was. And it was a, I mean, I, I was in, I went to see him like three times a week or maybe twice a week for, after a while for a long time. And it was really interesting, but it was also like really, really scary and um, difficult and it was awkward. And I really cared what he thought about me, even though I didn't like him and all of these strange things went on. And so that's how I first got into it. And then, and then I became really interested in psychoanalytic theory as applied to literature and I, part of my PhD was on Lacan. And then through Lacan, I got really back into Freud and into the, into the more, um, like the earlier aspects of psychoanalysis that I find such, much more interesting. Um, and then I went into training in, when I was like in my mid thirties, but I already had a, a PhD in literature and I had an academic job. So I wasn't necessarily looking to be a psychoanalyst. I was more kind of enhancing my career um, rather than changing it. And I thought that combining literature and psychoanalysis would make me a better reader and a better teacher. And, and, and then I had no idea of like the whole mess I was getting into with training and institutes and competition and technique and all the hierarchies and everything. So um, I was kind of disillusioned by that. So I trained enough to be certified, but not licensed. So I, I did it for, um, I mean, I, I had a private practice for a while and saw patients and then kind of mo mostly combined psychoanalysis with 
teaching, writing, and and then I got very interested in like forensic work and um, working with people in prisons and psychiatric hospitals, and I'm, I still do that. So it's just finding the parts that work for me, which I think a lot of um, people that you've spoken to managed to do in the end, you know, to get away from all that moribund narcissistic <laughs> hierarchies and and away from like the DSM and find a way to apply it in their own way. And that does bring us to your book. Yeah. Um, well, I don't, I don't talk overtly about psychoanalysis in the book. I don't think, although I, I think I refer to, um, the Phipps Clinic in, um, but I'm really interested in, I've always been interested in true crime and I've always had like a morbid curiosity. And, um, so a lot of my work has been about subjects that other people think of as morbid, but, um, and this strange death that occurred in the building that I live in. And it was like one of those, I mean, I've always been into like creepy and solved mysteries and, and it was one of those, but it was, it had like everything bizarre every bizarre element every classic bizarre element from like freemasonry to you know police cover-ups to strange cults and um basically this i I woke up one day went out to walk my dog and i saw all these missing posters all over the neighborhood for a guy who was had gone missing um he was 32 and he was like six foot four and really handsome and i was struck by First of all, I hadn't seen missing posters for a long time, and I, I was kind of interested in them. But also how handsome and big this guy was and so conspicuous. It's not the kind of person that you imagine going missing. And then um, a week or so later, they found his body in the building that I live in, in an empty office. And he had jumped or pushed or been pushed or fallen from the roof. And it's like an 18-story old building and landed and gone through a roof of an annex and landed in this disused office and the body had laid there for a week before being discovered and it was so fascinating because his he had everything to live for n- no mental illness nothing no suicidal tendencies perfectly like in a good relationship newly married making plans for the future making plans for that weekend um it was just it's just so inexplicable and I followed this case for like 10 years and um, it's actually still open as a homicide. So it's, it's really difficult to get any information about it. But um, since the book came out they're they're making an episode of unsolved mysteries about this case. And in fact, there are people coming tomorrow to, um, to look at locations and things. So maybe, and this is what I hope that like people would get more interested in the case after I wrote the book and maybe, it would be solved or at least people would kind of come out of the shadows and more information would be obtained because I was limited in what I could find because I'm not an investigator or not even a journalist or, um, and, and I'm kind of, I hate um, talking to people on the phone. And so I, you know, there was a limit into what I could find. I was more interested in writing about it, but I, when I read true crime, I'm mostly interested in how, like, not, I'm not really interested in, like, the forensics and the ballistics and on that kind of thing. I'm interested in how it, um, how it reveals more about human relationships and emotions, because those are at the heart of most, most true crimes anyway. What do you think about the relationship between kind of psychoanalysis and solving mysteries? Well, I do talk in the book about um, um, the purloined letter, post story, and and that yeah, I guess there's a big connection between like Auguste Dupin and Lacan and Freud, and yes, getting to the heart of things and solving mysteries. And I think that the the most interesting ways of the most interesting mysteries are insoluble anyway. But um, I think that most of them the best way to tackle them is not to go directly at the heart of them, but to go on tangents and just kind of follow your instinct. And so I, the, the book 
people have either loved it or hated it. And that's kind of what I expected. And the people who don't like it, they said, according to the reviews, like they just couldn't even finish it. They'd got a certain way in and they couldn't finish it because they were expecting like a straightforward true crime and they wanted a mystery and the police work and the details and like, like another, any, every other true crime, it's a genre. And, um, in this, it's, there's a lot of tangents and peripheries and it's like, I, it's kind of, it's also a part memoir and I use the crime as a kind of springboard to consider all the other kinds of things I'm interested in, like compulsions, obsessions, death, and, um, why we as human beings are interested in unsolved crimes. And, and again, that's another connection with psychoanalysis. I feel like certain crimes open up cracks in our experience of the world and they allow us to see things that we, that we normally repress like as a culture, as well as individuals. And, um, and it's really fascinating to get a glimpse down there. And also, um, as I said, most true crime, most crimes are committed by, because of an excess of emotion. And so they allow us to see what I feel like that could be any one of us could commit the crime like that. If we had the emotions that we have, but just to excess, it's not, they're not criminals and are different kind of people. They're me and you, but their emotions have driven them to moments of, you know, losing their temper or, envy or greed or longing, lust, despair. These are all emotions that everyone feels, but usually not to such extremes that we're driven to, to commit a crime. So, but our feelings for each other are writ large in these, in these acts of violence that, that then become, and I think that's one of the reasons why people are so fascinated by them. Um, there's a quote that I have included in the book that I really like from George Bernard Shaw, when we want to read of the deeds that are done for love, whither do we turn to the murder column? I think that's, that's really true that, um, that's where you find, that's where love is writ large in, in the murder column. Um, and, and the people who like the book like it because of those tangents and, and kind of peripheral journeys. Um, and I, there was a review, one of the reviews I really like, even though it's probably not meant to be flattering, it, said, it describes it as an odd, slightly creepy book. An Unexplained Death is the kind of book that's perfect for the person who poked at roadkill as a child. <laughs> and I, I, I love that. I mean, I didn't poke at roadkill, but, um, but I was that kind of child. A compulsive exploration of the shadowy borders of our collective fascination with unsolved crimes. And I love it when the word creepy is used in connection with it because um, I love creepy things myself. So that's what I was going for, creepy and compulsive. Yeah, I think that's why I loved it because I loved all of the kind of journeys. I didn't even think of them as tangents. I just thought them as like, yeah, like following the associations. I felt like it made a fuller picture. And I had the experience where like once I sat down to read it, I was on a train. I just like read the whole thing in one sitting. Like I just read the whole book. <laughs> yeah and i that i like there are there are books that i've read where the crime is the heart of the book but it's also like a catalyst for reflection and um analysis and investigation and anecdote and and i guess some people think like there's a story and then there's these things that are tangential to the story and that's never i mean i feel like like you do i'm not writing a particular story that has a, an, a narrative arc, although I guess in the end it does, but it's more like, um, seeing what's generated by these personal observations and, and a lot of the tangents become abstract, but, and they lead into things like philosophy and psychology and religion and things that perhaps people perhaps don't think of as playing an important role in true crime. But to me, like I said, the crime is the is like the starting point for these investigations into, into everything really. I mean, there's nothing that's outside the purview of the investigation. Um, and I think that's probably why I don't much like traditional, like genre true crime, because it usually takes the point of view of the prosecution and 
and it usually um, it pays attention to things that like scientific details or forensics and things like that that I'm not ballistics things that don't really interest me very much I'm more, much more interested in psychology and the human elements of it and not not so much like the lab work and the and the CSI stuff yeah that gets almost fetishistic I find people yeah. like really get into the kind of nitty-gritty of those details yeah the objects and um the trajectory of bullets and things like that I mean there was some of that in this because I, I did talk to some um physicists who were like forensic physicists who worked on the trajectory of a fall or a push like how can you tell from someone's injuries when they've been pushed or because it this Ray Rivera he he landed so far out from the roof that it had to be a running jump and that was just the implications of that are really interesting because it the assumption is then well it has to be a suicide but Maybe not. I mean, maybe there are circumstances in which someone could take a running jump from a building and it's not of their own volition or they're at gunpoint or they're trying to avoid something worse. Or, I mean, there's all, there are all kinds of other possibilities that are opened up by that. But, yeah, the, the physics itself is not particularly um, interesting to me. And I tend to – I don't really have much of a head for figures and details and um, I tend to sort of get lost in those in those things. And I want the – the psychological elements, the human elements to come back. I think something else that's interesting is that you don't often get this perspective. Like it shows like your perspective as someone in a building where this happened and people don't often think about, like they think about the person it happened to and the person who maybe committed the act, if it's a homicide, maybe the family members affected like the children or the spouse or something, but like it affects the neighborhood. It affects the place you know, and yeah. you're like a person that's tangentially involved, like in the space, but not the usual kind of view that someone might see. Yeah, that, that's right. And in fact, um, I, re- I have a book of short stories called 13 Girls, which is, um, I took 13 real victims of murder. And I fictionalize the stories, but each one is like a real case. But it's told from the perspective of someone like who might be the therapist or the girl's best friend or someone who happened to work with her or someone who was like in her circle, but not directly involved in the crime itself. And then I wrote about like how they were impacted by it. And sometimes it's not very much, you know, just someone who didn't know the girl very well. She went missing. It was like curious for a day or two. And then and then gone away. So each um, incident is like, it's like makes, it's like a stone thrown into water and it makes ripples, but the ripples depend on, you know, how, how close you are to the center of the, the, the stone, the explosion really. Um, and if you're way out on the edge, it's not, it's, you know, a little, a glitch in your day, but, but no more. Um, so yeah, that, that's interesting. I actually really like the, I mean, I have a podcast too and it's, um, but I'm not on it. I don't speak in it. So I'm all, I'm really interested in watching and listening to trials and audio of trials and police interrogations and things like that. But I'm what I don't like having a narrative and I don't like having someone edit and explain and filter out and tell me what's important and decide what's important or not. So I'm, I've, I just release like a section of audio from that I find compelling, whether it's from a trial or a police interrogation or um, a 911 call or like something that's in the public domain anyway, but it's unedited and um, it's, I just include like an hour, even if it's a trial, like with the sidebars and the off topic discussions, because to me, again, it's like it's like analysis. Like those things are really telling, and sometimes they're much more interesting than what's going on. You know, what the witness testimony or, or um, the, the police report. It's um, you know the the sidebars or when the judge takes a break, like what people are talking about, and in you know what the audio picks up. Or, um, or like the chat before the lie detector test begins or 
those kinds of things that are not part like off stage, those are really interesting to me. And most um, podcasts that present like true crime, they have a structure and they say, you know, this, we're going to talk about this case and here's what's important. But I, I, I'm not so interested in, in what's important, <laughs> you know, and what's unimportant is often more important to me. Exactly. Um, it's the, it's the, not sticking with the linear narrative, this happened and right. this happened and this happened, because right. all those kind of sidebars are juicy tidbits that could really open up the story or tell you what's really going on underneath the surface. Right. And then like the dramatic moments, like the verdict or the sentencing, those are, those are, you know, those in advance. I mean, those are pretty predictable anyway. And, um, and even if they're not, it's like guilty or not guilty. I mean, there's not, there's not, there's nothing in between. And it's, they're not dramatic to me that, um, I'm, and when they are, I'd rather have those details firsthand than have someone sort of explain, explain to me, you know, what's going on in, in, in this case. Sometimes I, one of the things I like about doing the podcast is like, it's like curating these bits of audio because um, it sometimes I'll start listening to some, a trial or something, have no idea what's going on, who the person is, what they've done. It's still like really interesting to kind of put things together at like a jigsaw puzzle for myself. Um, even the sort of small moments and physical details that are overlooked by most court reporters. I mean, they don't, re not many newspapers have court reporters anymore, but like just what someone's wearing or the person who's accompanying them or those are more interesting than like the implications of the legal arguments. Um, so, um, what I'm working on now is, um, a, a, a story where I, I know a guy, I've been, I, I used to work in this, um, maximum security forensic hospital and I kept in touch with some of the people who I knew there. And this is a guy who killed his parents when he was, 22 when he he was a paranoid schizophrenic and but he's been in in this hospital for almost 30 years now and um so it's like the story of what happens after the crime most true crime ends where the the person is arrested uh, the perpetrator is found arrested and and then like they went to prison for the rest of their life or he was found criminally insane but usually that's the beginning of someone's life. I mean, most crimes are committed by young men in their 20s. People's lives go on. They, they have relationships. They have jobs. They um, develop their personalities. Sometimes they fall in love and sometimes they're released. It's not the end. It's, it, it might be the end of the public story, the end of the headlines, but that person's life goes on. With and, and they too are a victim in, in some ways, especially if it's been, uh, especially if they were suffering from a mental illness at the time. So I'm writing the, the story of what happens after, like his his years and years in the hospital, which people might think that not much happens in the maximum security hospital. But this guy's had, I mean, he's he tried to escape, he got away, he was shot by the police. He, one of his doctors, turned out to be criminally insane. Um, there were two murders in a single week, patient on patient murders, and so much has happened that he's been witness to um, in this hospital. And he's just he's had a really fascinating life. No, that's really interesting. Yeah, how did you yeah. get the idea to do that? Just from from talking to the guy, and um, though I used to have this, I had this reading group, and there there was a a girl. And a woman in the group who was also, she was in hospital for being, she was just being um, evaluated to see if she was competent to stand trial. And Brian, the guy who I'm writing about, really was attracted to her. And he thought about asking her out, whatever that means. And then he said to me, when I realized, he realized she was only like, I think 18. And he said, I realized that um, when she was born, I was closer to getting out than I am now like 18 years ago. And that, and I just thought, wow, I mean, he's really, um, what, what have those years been like, you know? And I, and I, I really wanted to know what it was like to, um, and I started to get to know 
men in, in prison as well who've been in prison for a really long time and just became I guess this is <laughs> taking us back to psychoanalysis you know when I I was listening to the I think it was when you were talking to Todd Dean was that the last one you did mm-hmm. so did he and um, was he in Africa because I feel like I I used to go to this Africa meeting since okay, I thought I recognized his voice um and you were talking about like how it becomes just case management and, and triage when you have, you know, this huge caseload and you have to just use the DSM and you're just like cataloging people basically. And I found that, yeah, it just became like triage. You're just, you can't do anything when you have like a big caseload of patients. And I mean, most people simply don't have the time to, um, to follow their thought process at leisure, you know, a lot of people who are in therapy just need something immediate, like some immediate concrete help that I certainly was not able to provide. But so I, I, um, I felt like it was more useful, um, to, if I was going to work with these people to, um, to learn more about what the life of someone is like inside a prison or inside a forensic hospital. So, um, I, yeah, I just, it's just scary and fascinating how difficult and painful life is for the majority of people actually. Um, but also how, how much scope there is for, um, improvement and self-understanding and how just, um, this, you know, the simple act of talking can be magical and transformative. Um, and if it's, if that's the case with a, an analytic patient, then so much more so in someone who, you know, has been in prison for 30 years and, um, never talks to anyone except their soulmate. And, um, I've been also working at this, um, a sex offenders clinic here and doing forensic evaluations, almost always men who've been, um, uh, accused of downloading child pornography and, these are, again, it's just fascinating to like find, to go beneath the surface and find out this whole um, kind of residue of humanity the, and, and people who are scapegoated and um, who are cast out and understand things from that perspective, from their perspective and the things that who've done things that most, most people would be are horrified by like rape and murder and, um, to try to understand and, um, explore the emotion, the emotions of, of people who have committed acts like that because they're not, they're not monsters. It's too, it's too easy to, to just kind of dismiss them as not being like us. I mean, as with all, as with the true, true crime, I mean, this, they are, as they just have the, um, lost control of their emotions, but they're the same emotions that, that we have. No, that's a really good point, and that's really important because even with, like, like recently, like this whole Michael Jackson documentary thing and people either pointing the finger and it's like, okay, it's really easy just to go, oh, he's a monster, but, like, how did that happen? Like, clearly yeah. there's, like, child abuse, there's other things going on, there's this, like, celebrity worship and people getting, like, blindsided by things leaving their children with him you know <laughs> so it's just like there's like so many different factors you can't just point your finger at someone and write them off as saying yeah. like they're they're other or they're different because this happened this developed for some reason I thought that documentary I haven't I saw the documentary I haven't heard anything of the controversy but I, I really enjoyed that documentary because I felt like it's very rare that you get a documentary that actually is not simply black or white but um explores what goes on and as the the young men expressed in the documentary like you know they loved him they adored him they wanted to be you know they were um distressed when they were cast out and rejected and yet it was also child abuse you know you can love someone and they can abuse you i mean that's it's not incompatible and people never talk about the how it's a reciprocal relationship, but it's still abuse. You know, it doesn't, 
it doesn't mean it's not abuse. I felt like the in when I was in training, a lot of the time you had to kind of think of that like the th- you're either the therapist or the patient. You, you're you're not both, and the fact that you're one or the other allows you to use certain vocabulary and um, discuss things in a certain way. And it's full of like power relationships. Um, so you, you know, the patient will have blind spots or take on defenses or deny things or desire things or question things. But it's only because the, the patient that you're seeing, I mean, we all do these things too. It's just that in the power relationship, in, in a therapeutic relationship, someone else is pointing them out. But um, it's not that you, only patients have them. So, and this, this, I found this a lot in the, um, in this forensic hospital. And again, it's like, even, even talking about this, it's, it's, it's really easy to think of like the, the psychiatrist as the bad guys, which is not true either because most of them really care for the patients and want to help. But like nobody talks about feeling, they talk about affect and nobody talks about like feelings about other people. You talk about transferences and no one is depressed. It's anhedonia or, you know, you're not just like feeling pissed off. It's expressing, um, anhedonic resistances or something. And, or, and, um, if you fall in love with someone, it's like boundaries fused and that's, um, but a therapist would never talk about feeling, falling in love with a patient or, having strong emotions for them, that would be kind of taboo and a failure. It would be evidence of failure to say of a patient, oh, I really love him or I adore him. Or, but you can say it, you just can't say it in those words. You can talk about, I felt my boundaries becoming fused or I had to resist this transference. Or, but it's just a kind of defensive way of talking about the same things. Um, there's very ordinary human emotions and, but you're kind of trained not to see patients as your equals and, um, and not to think, well, it could be me in that position. You know, I could be suffering in that way. And perhaps sometimes I do. And also I think that, that people start to use that language and then they start to believe in it. And that's when it becomes problematic when you stop being aware that you're using these kind of magic words yourself and you believe, believe in your, the spell works on you as well as them. Yeah, when they just kind of start turning into jargon, like loaded words, but there's not really any thought between behind what they actually mean anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, but it could. I mean, it's interesting to to think how like that can be also really positive, the way that words kind of have that magic in analysis. So, a diagnosis can be reductive and pointless um and stigmatizing but it can also be really helpful to some people to find that like oh this thing has a name and other people have it too and people know about it and they know what to do and maybe there's a drug that helps with it and it can be like the magic word that you discover can be it's kind of real and it's not real at the same time you know because every you know every borderline patient is different but there are important similarities. And so that, yeah, that can be, it can be useful for both the doctor and patient to know the word. But I think that's what I, what interests me so much about psychoanalysis is like the emphasis on language and, um, and how it reminds us that words are magic and that they, and that they do cast spells in the world. And that's another overlap with true crime actually, because you know, in the courtroom, the judge pronouncing that sentence, that is, you know, it's just a word, but it's like someone is, can be sentenced to death or, or married or divorced. Those, those legal words enact life and death sentences. Um, so they, they do have magic in that sense in the same way that a, a diagnosis has magic. Mm-hmm. How did you end up working in like forensic settings in the first place? Um, I was on sabbatical for a year and I set up, um, I wanted to work in a prison because I'd, I'd heard of the volunteering in prisons. I'd heard of other people doing it and it sounded like a, an interesting thing to do. 
and I got in touch with some prison librarians and I started a book club in um, prison. I read a book about this too. It's called the Maximum Security Book Club. And um, so then from there, I did that for like two or three years and I, and I, another one in a forensic hospital. And then um, I just got really interested in the Mem- the patients in the in the hospital and the men in prison and their lives and their cases and um, I just never really lost touch with any of them and just carried on you know even after the the book clubs were over um, carried on visiting and um, I wanted to know what happened you know with their cases some of them got out of prison and I'm still in touch with them but and I and through that I guess I just got to know like psychiatrists who worked in that field and um, got to know um, the system a little bit and like how evaluations work and how um, how like forensic psychiatry works and and just began like dabbling and um, doing what I could on a voluntary basis and then um, then started picking up like some paid work um, No, I think that's really wonderful that you do that because it's a similar thing. Like when I worked in hospital settings, it was some inpatient psychiatric units, but then just like I did consultation liaison services where I'd only see people while they were in the hospital, like for other yeah. medical problems. And then I worked in an HIV clinic for five years um, that was in a hospital, but it was outpatient based. But in all of these settings, it is so different just to speak with people and let them speak and listen and take time and not have the time be like designated for this evaluation or this form to be filled out or this prescription to be given or this kind of uh, something to be ordered or decided upon and just to like sit and chat and listen and be aware and really be present with them it's like nobody yeah. did it <laughs> yeah and and to do it on a basis like you're not a care provider, you're a fellow human being and you actually have an interest in them as another human being in their lives. Because um, I, I guess I feel in some ways like I have an affinity for isolation myself. Like I really enjoy being on my own. Um, and I think in a way um, – it's almost, I almost feel, I almost have to try to like make sure that I, you know, have some human interaction during the day that I, that I, and that's why it's a good thing, you know, that I go to work and because it's, it's very tempting to, to be isolated. And it's really important to, um, to remember that the grounding influence of other people, even if you don't necessarily feel like um, being social, it always helps. It always makes me feel better. And it always reminds me of, that you know we're sort of all in this together, and I feel how much how much greater that that must be for people who, you know, are, are living their lives in a cell. Or, um, I mean, there's a, a a guy who I I talk to a lot on the phone, who's in a maximum security prison, and he 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 does he's never been on the, on the internet, for example. He doesn't know what the internet is. Um, he's seen he sees it refers to in TV shows and things, um, and he was on a he was taken from a prison to court and back recently. And he said he glimpsed out of the window. Like he said, he saw that parking meters had flashing lights on them. Like what did, he didn't, that's new. Like, what does that mean? What do those lights mean? And just, um, things in the world that we take for granted, like cell phones or a GPS. I have to explain these. It's like talking to someone from another planet. You know, you have to explain what things are, but it's, it's almost like there's this kind of, I mean, when I, when I, when you realize how many people are in, in this position, it's like there's this huge kind of underworld of people who are living, who are um, like kept out of reality and don't deal with money or, or don't go online or don't deal with like the everyday world and are living in, living such a limited life in so many ways that and don't have you know so many so many so many people don't have visitors and it's 
it's uh, just just writing letters is is something people don't tend to do anymore, and it's really um, it, it just makes I know it makes such a difference to people to have someone writing to them and interested in their their lives and um, and so it's really rewarding for me. It's and I think also our relationship with the external world is is says something about our ability to, to love and to relate to other people and we have to um, it it reminds us who we are and our, about our relationship with ourselves um, and and also I feel like I really love that formulation of Freud's where he talks about the point of psychoanalysis to be to transform um what is it, uncommon neurosis into everyday unhappiness, something like that. Because I think that that's, that's, I mean, people, no insurance would pay for someone to be given ordinary unhappiness, I don't think, if you put that on the insurance form. But I think that, you know, that's actually, for many people, that's a lot to ask. <laughs> ordinary unhappiness is um, much better than what they have now. So it's, it might seem like it's a minor feat, but I think it's it's not just enormous, but it's also truthful. You know, it's really honest. And that's the other thing about that language. Um, I feel like that, that, you know, using that language about anhedonia and boundary fusion is deceptive. It's it's like it's it stinks. <laughs> In some ways it stinks of deception. It's like armor to protect you from ordinary human feelings and to protect you from acknowledging how much other people, how similar you are to other people and how much they're suffering. And, um, you can't be seen as like weak or sensitive because that's being incompetent. Um, and I do understand if you have like a huge caseload of really difficult patients, you do want to keep yourself from, empathizing completely with every single one of them. But again, sometimes it's too easy to like fall into the trap of believing in that language and thinking that you are separate from them and different from them. Well, often in the beginning you said that um, in your psychoanalysis that you went through Lacan through your dissertation and then it brought you back around to Freud and all the yeah. early things that Freud talked about that you really like. What are those? Oh, well, I, um, again, people sort of, I think people sort of dismiss, dismiss these a bit now, but his work on the uncanny and on, um, precognition and like his, the occult stuff, which, some people say that he turned his back on, but I don't think, I don't think he ever did. Um, he was just being, you know, he's being pragmatic about it, but like the, the subliminal self, um, and the connection between psychoanalysis and like hypnotism and mesmerism and, um, trance states and, um, and to myth and folklore and the way that it, it links back to all of the kind of, um, Stuff, stuff that I'm most interested in, which is, yeah, the areas of the self that um, that we can't normally get in touch with. Because I I think also that's, like, it's those cracks in the surface of reality where you can, where there are, you know, having, when you talk, when he, in, in his essay on precognitive dreams or fortune tellers or strange coincidences, it seems like there's something in there that's um that kind of gate crashes the time barrier or you know there's something um almost supernatural about it and Freud's trying to like hedging around it trying to explain it and trying to make a system out of it but he can't and I and I think that the most interesting unsolved mysteries to me do that too it's like someone vanishes like with it while walking down a hotel corridor or something and like and never seen again what happened? Where did they go? And um, it seems as though there's it, there's a connection between, like, yeah, it's almost as though they've kind of fallen down a crack in, in reality and disappeared. 
and Freud's really into, you know, he's really got this great um, sensitivity about those things. There's an, I can't remember which, there's an essay where he's, he's, he's reading a book, the, um, the Foresight Saga, and then an Englishman comes to his home who is called Foresight, Mr. Foresight, and then, and Freud's writing about foresight and recognition as well. Like, the way that language plays into those events, those superstitions is is kind of fascinating. And, um, I mean, I think it's, I think it was Jones that talks about him ha- having this kind of pendulum swing between skepticism and credulity. But there are later letters where Freud says, well, if he could live his life again, he would spend it investigating um, the occult. And I think um, he's really aware of those those strange coincidences and um, and uncanny dreams and like his essay on the uncanny is just fascinating. The, mom- the moments where he sees himself in a mirror and like doesn't recognize himself, um, I feel like they tap into something in the unconscious that's that's beyond scientific explanation and. It's really um, fruitful and productive to think about, but there's no, there's no, nothing can be concluded from it because it's not really, it's outside of language and and consciousness even. It's kind of like, like it's hard to talk about it. It's like trying to talk about a dream when you've just woken up and you, the dream's there, but it doesn't really make sense because <laughs> it's outside of language. It's yeah, you can't it. really put words on it. Right, yeah. Yeah, but you would think, I would hope, that as psychoanalysts that we would be open to exploring those kinds of things and letting there not come to a decisive conclusion at the end and just exploring to see where the exploration goes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, well, that's the difference between, you know, what people, the people who are on your podcast are able to do. And then people who work in a, in a clinical setting where, you know, it's simply like reimbursement, filling in a form, diagnosis, um, classification and and not exploring and thinking and reading and but I think yeah I I sometimes find myself in this split between this tendency to explore and follow peripheries and then something that immediately needs to be done like someone who wants needs to be helped so however I often find that what they the person might think they want immediate help but actually a tangent or an exploration can bring about an improvement that the person wasn't expecting or anticipating. Like we often don't know what we really want, even if we think we know exactly what we want immediately. So it's always good to explore and take the long way around. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Makita Brotman. For more, please visit her website, MikitaBrotman.com. That's M-I-K-I-T-A-B-R-O-T-T-M-A-N.com. You can also visit our publisher's website, Trapart.net, and my website, DrVanessaSinclair.net.
priestesses too. And she knows. If ever there was a desert, it is of no response. From the heart we stare to the blessed, my children, my children only. Sometimes I feel so conscious, awake enough to spill a tear or two, two for myself, two for myself, two for my priestess, two for myself. The great hole goes dark. A vortex as earth eats, falls apart. Each seed ejaculating like the executed. As fools burn glass and dreams. Dreams we call robes. Burning the old home, burning. 